On November 19, 1977, Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt and arguably the leader of the Arab world, stepped off a plane at Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. This was the first time an Arab leader publicly set foot in the Jewish state. It was a historic day for Israeli-Arab relations. He was to go his own way for the restoration of Egyptian land and the cause of peace. Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season, we will tell the story of important Israeli and Arab leaders and their contributions to Arab-Israel relations over the last 70-plus years. My name is David Markovsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute, and I'm excited to go on this journey through history with you. Anwar Sadat was born in 1918 to a poor family living in the Nile Delta. While in the military, he met a fellow officer, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Sadat, Nasser, and several other officers formed the Free Officers Movement, opposed to royal corruption and British domination in Egypt. In 1952, they staged a coup against King Farouk, deposing the pro-British royal government and installing a military government in its place. The new government espoused Nasserism, which combined strong pan-Arab nationalism and aspects of socialism aligning with the Soviet Union. In 1969, Sadat became vice president. In 1970, Nasser died suddenly, and Sadat was catapulted to the presidency, where he fluctuated between embracing and distancing himself from Nasserism. While Nasser was seen as a strong and charismatic leader, Sadat was underestimated by many and was even sometimes referred derisively, of course, as Nasser's poodle. I must say, uh, we did not take Sadat very seriously. For a while, I thought he was a character out of Aida, (laughs) who was uh, making terrible threats, which he never implemented. But as he would quickly demonstrate, Sadat was far from weak. Soon after becoming president, Sadat purged the government of officials with strong Nasserists or Soviet ties. Sadat's willingness to negotiate with Israel over the Sinai, initially through third parties, was a marked change for Egypt. Soon after becoming president, Sadat agreed to take part in talks led by UN Special Envoy Gunnar Yaring. Sadat was willing to consider a partial interim withdrawal of Israeli forces from the Suez Canal, which he saw as a first step towards a full withdrawal. He would stir debate in Israel until this very day about whether such an agreement between Egypt and Israel in 1971 would have been possible, and if so, would it have averted the bloody 1973 war. When Secretary of State Rogers could not achieve Israeli agreement, Sadat thought about next steps in rebuilding the Egyptian military in anticipation of conflict with Israel. For this, he thought the Soviet Union could be helpful, but only to a certain point. The Soviets were not an ideal ally for Sadat. They were useful when it came to weapons, but they had no diplomatic relations with Israel. In 1972, Sadat expelled over 15,000 Soviet military advisors, 
and blame them for adopting a no-war, no-peace position, locking Egypt in a stalemate. That next conflict came on October 6, 1973, when Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack on Israel during its holiest religious day of the year. Sadat clearly wanted to shatter the status quo and have Egyptians cross the Suez Canal under the umbrella of Soviet anti-aircraft batteries. However, Egypt didn't stop there and tried to go further into the Sinai, rejecting a British ceasefire. In response, the U.S. turned on the flow of weapons to Israel, changing the direction of the war and leaving Israel holding both banks of the Suez Canal and encircling the Egyptian Third Army. While Sadat did not achieve his military goal, he believed he shattered the status quo with the 1973 war. Knowing that war was coming, he had secret talks with the Saudis about imposing an Arab oil embargo on the West. Resolving the crisis was imperative. The war had closed the Suez Canal with significant economic ramifications. Now Sadat would be in direct contact with the American Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. Through Kissinger's shuttle diplomacy, flying between Cairo and Jerusalem, two interim Israeli withdrawals from the banks of the canal were achieved. These are known as Sinai 1 and Sinai 2 in 1974 and 1975, respectively. For Kissinger, these disengagement agreements were crucial because they made war between Egypt and Israel less likely, and they brought Egypt closer to Washington. The Suez Canal was demined and reopened, but Israel and Egypt could have fallen back into war at any moment. Continued military spending to prepare for potential conflict, coupled with public anger at Sadat's economic liberalization and lifting of price controls on basic necessities, led to early 1977 bread riots across Egypt. The bread riots caused Sadat to believe the gradual approach favored by Kissinger may have had some advantages, but change was not coming quickly enough. When Jimmy Carter became president in January 1977, he launched his Middle East Peace Initiative, reaching out to key Arab leaders to lay the groundwork for a comprehensive conference at Geneva. By September 1977, Egypt had created a groundbreaking back-channel dialogue between Egyptian Deputy Prime Minister Hassan Touhami and Israeli Foreign Minister Moshe Dayan, moderated by Moroccan King Hassan II. This was a true milestone in Egyptian-Israeli bilateral talks. Despite Sadat's reluctance for a comprehensive peace conference, believing it was a ticket to nowhere, the U.S. and USSR released the Geneva communique of October 1, 1977, agreeing to basic principles. Just a few days later, Sadat sent a rare personal note to Carter, urging the U.S. not to interfere and prevent direct Egyptian-Israeli talks. Still, Carter continued to push for the Geneva Conference, asking Sadat to publicly endorse it. Sadat would not be swayed, however, and in late October 1977, he visited Romania and Iran, among other countries, whose leaders actually had ties with Israel, and they urged him to even go to Israel. On November 8th, Sadat stunned the world when he told the Egyptian parliament that he would go, quote, to the end of the earth, even the Knesset, to save Egyptian lives. Sadat knew the trip would be a major risk, especially within the Arab world. Just days before going to Israel, 
He flew to Syria, where President Hafez al-Assad immediately denounced Sadat's plans, but this did not deter Sadat. The whole situation needed action. The peace process needed momentum again. And these are uh, the motives behind this initiative. On November 19, 1977, Israel and the world watched in a shocked silence as Anwar Sadat arrived in Israel. Here to discuss Sadat's change of heart and his journey to Jerusalem is Dr. Abdul Munim Said Ali. Dr. Abdul Munim Said Ali is a preeminent Egyptian scholar on Anwar Sadat and his road to Jerusalem, and he heads the Regional Center for Strategic Studies in Cairo. Abdul Munim, why was Sadat so underestimated by so many in Egypt and around the world when he became president? So he was underestimated because Sadat himself, the shadow of Nasser, was over his shoulder. And that's number one. I mean, he was underestimated because he came after a leader who got in reputation and stature, I believe, more than he should deserve. However, he got it. I mean, the charisma, the time he was in during the 1950s, and also his sponsorship of the idea of liberation in a time after the Second World War, you have the issue of anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, and the call for independence of, of countries. So Nasser was on that mainstream third world uh, political moves. Sadat was much more kind of a cooler person, reflective. There was a lot of talk about he doesn't read anything, but actually he was reading and reading a lot. And the most important reading he was doing was many of the literature in the United States. There was a lot of uh, ideas about how to deal with the Arab-Israeli conflict. Those people started to get to Sadat the idea how much the psychological gap is playing into the conflict and deepening it. That kind of a psychological gap led him to the idea you got to break it by something big. And that something big was to go to Jerusalem. Plus, what he did in the 1973 war, his success on the surprise attack on, on Israel, using actually, in many ways, the psychological and image of Egyptians in the minds of Israelis, to use it actually to make the the surprise attack that allowed the Egyptian forces to cross the Swiss Canal. So what seems like an impossible thing was achieved through that. I will here will say that Sadat and Kissinger probably understanding, starting from November 1973, when Kissinger came to Egypt for the first uh, time in the 6th of, of November, started a process of probably mutual education between the two persons. Because we know that Kissinger was adamant about the idea of step-by-step approach. In the meantime, Sadat knows very well that the disengagement agreements will not be very much accepted. People in Egypt, particularly the left, 
was very adamant about, you know, the idea that the Israelis should withdraw to the international borders. And I guess there that we can have the link from the disengagement agreements to going to Jerusalem. There's a debate in Israel to this day. You would have had that 71 agreement. Could it have averted the war? How much was the war of 73 inevitable or could it be averted? The idea of a comprehensive war was almost practically impossible. Limited war, however, which was one of the major components of the 1973 war, it was a war to cross. Then you initiate a big diplomatic offensive to try to find the solution to the problem. That's related to Egypt, basically. After that, Sadat started to put all the pieces together, and he found that he will not get it from the Russians unless, so far as they are already in Egypt and somehow can press Egypt in different ways. So when he asked the Russians to take their experts, actually he wanted to free his decision. And luckily for him, that the Russians after that became much, much, much more forthcoming in getting him the most needed weapons that he can initiate this limited war into Sinai. Were there any advisors that really influenced him in in this thinking, who who helped him along in this regard? The names came to mind later on. I think that was Osama al-Bas, who played a a very important role. And we don't forget that Osama was a Harvard graduate, and he was uh, linked as a guy in, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs with Washington and other places. And he was the one at the end in Camp David. He was the Egyptian engineer, the one in expert on Egypt side. So I, I'm just trying to understand what led him down first with Kissinger down this road, and then we'll get to the Carter period. So that uh, cognitive map was very complex, and I believe there was a number of, of stops that uh, or blocks that uh, made his mind set on how to deal with this issue. Number one was when Egypt in 1967, who was like many Egyptians, thought as an Egyptian patriot, as an Egyptian ex-military guy, as an Egyptian part of the Egyptian generation of Egyptian July revolution, this guy was the idea of liberating the territories was number one priority. It was the number one insult, the number one shame that came to all Egyptians. On the other side, the guy, we know in 1966 that he made two important visits for a long time, relatively long time. One to visit Moscow and the Soviet Union, and the second was for the United States, in which he stayed for, I don't remember how much, how many weeks, but it was not a few days. And he saw the United States, and somehow he came back with the impression that somehow Egypt was too much closed became distanced from the rest of the world and what's happening in it technologically and economically and so forth. A guy from the 40s, when Egypt was the place in which world leaders come to make meetings during the Second World War and where Al-Alamin happened, centrality of Egypt in its linkage with the world, I guess he found that Egypt, because of linkage to Soviet Union, socialist policies, Arab nationalism rhetoric, 
became too much departed from a heritage in which the West was an important part of it. That's very interesting. The 40s, as you're right, is that, uh, you know, FDR and, and King, you know, Ibn Saud, they met at the Suez Canal. And there were other meetings. There were meetings in Cairo and the like. So uh, it was more of a center in those days, uh, even for the United States. Yes. And I will add number three. There was something growing up inside the Egyptian military, and that was an important block, which was the attrition war. The idea of attrition war, which was actually started immediately after the 1967, was with a small battle called the Ra'selaish battle, northern of, of the Swiss Canal on the eastern side of the canal, in which an Egyptian garrison stayed. They didn't withdraw with the Egyptian forces. So the Israelis tried to attack them, and there there was a, they made a final stand and stayed and succeeded. That was the beginning. Other operations started to grow. One of them was to hunt and sink uh, one of the Israeli destroyers. Then the attrition war came 1969-1970, in which was to make the occupation costly to Israel. Because many people think once the 67 war was over, that was it. But the truth is, as you say, the war of attrition on the Suez Canal between Egypt and Israel continued, you know, 68, 69, 70. And there was Soviet weapons that was used by Egypt at that time. So these battles were not a thing of the past. Let was not think of the past. Actually, that's how in many ways baptized Egyptian forces to the coming big war. In many ways, also, it tested the idea of a limited war strategy. You know, how we fight the Israelis. Always we fight Israelis on territories. And there it was geopolitical and geostrategic on the ground. How much ground you occupy, how much ground you liberate on the other side. However, the vulnerability of Israel was human. It was the demographic factor that matters. Hence, you know, the idea is, if you can make Israel feel the pain that we felt in 1967, which we have about 10,000 almost soldiers died, then Israel probably will need less in order to affect their decision-making mechanisms regarding staying or not staying, compromising or not compromising regarding Egypt. So how did they he define limited war? Limited war is to get to the Straits in Sinai, which is... In the first third of Sinai, if you take the whole space of Sinai between the Swiss Canal and the Egyptian-Israeli borders, I believe that was the goal. But the time the ceasefire came, first of all, my evaluation of it, he should have accepted. <laughs> if I was Because that changed the war for the United States. Then Kissinger and Nixon start pouring in all the weapons. They said, look, we tried the ceasefire, and he doesn't want it. And now he's got the Soviet airlift coming. So, like, we're not going to let the Soviets win this war. Under this point, you know, you will find a number of factors. There was the pressure from the Arab countries. There was the pressure of the Russians who felt that they can, their weapons overcome American weapons. Also, Sadat was still afraid that he didn't make enough psychological impact and cost on Israel to initiate a big process. That is his estimation. He couldn't accept. I think he was wrong. The big message of the 1973 war was an extension of the message of the war of attrition, which is to make a battle that cost Israel enough to make it much more malleable 
for talking. And once we start talking, then there will be a number of things that we can settle for the issue of getting Egyptian territories all back. So indeed, that's what happens is that, you know, he gets with these two disengagement agreements with Kissinger and then Carter comes in and then uh, Carter wants to be different than Kissinger. No more gradualism, no more bilateralism, but comprehensivism. And uh, this was a whole different approach. And it seemed that that Sadat understood that this uh, had its challenges because it would make him conditioned linked to other Arab countries like Syria that had no interest in making peace with Israel. That's another point if we concentrate on Sadat. I believe Sadat never believed on a kind of a Geneva-like collective kind of a conference. He realized very much that Arab countries are busy with many things. By that time, we were in 1967, 1977, in which you have the Lebanese civil war. The Syrians were highly involved into it. There was clashes and kind of jealousies between the Ba'ath in Damascus and in Baghdad. Sadat, and I guess all the Egyptian military establishment, realized that if we are going to do something in war and peace, we have to do it alone. What led him to agree to let Hassan Touhami to meet Moshe Dayan in Morocco in September 77? This seems like a big move and set the groundwork for his historic trip to Jerusalem. That's one of the biggest puzzles even in Egypt. But I will tell you my educated guess. Hassan Touhami was known in Egypt that his mind was not stable enough for that kind of negotiations. He was considered a Sufi mystic, wasn't he? A kind of Sufi mystic. You don't put a Sufi mystic into that kind of negotiations. But he did. And my reason for that, or my understanding of that reason, he wants something deniable at that stage. You know, it made a momentary kind of goodwill. But in substance, there was almost nothing or very little. Later on, I believe Sadat went to Jerusalem because he doesn't want Carter to go into the Geneva-type conference and deliberately to undermine it. All the pressure was on Sadat. Here, the, you know, the Arab world severed ties. The Arab League was moved out of Cairo. You had, I don't know, was it Arafat or someone saying, I will shake the hand of the man who pulls the trigger against Sadat, you know, he was denounced, and yet he had the strength, and he had the sense that it always rings with me. He said, whoever tries to isolate Egypt isolates themselves. He had a certain confidence, it seems to me, in Egypt's role in the Arab world, in the Middle East, as being so central that nobody could isolate Egypt. If you could talk about this strength. I think that was a great point. At the time, Egypt made war. In the time of testing, it made what's necessary. But in the same time, Sadat was realizing the increase in oil prices, the amount of money that was coming to the Arab world, that Egypt, in the ranking of wealth, and after particularly six years of being under occupation and getting ready to deal with that, was highly costly. And Egypt was economically under the water. And now uh, new Arab countries are getting upwards. But in terms of thinking also, he was believing that Egypt should lead. I'm wondering how psychologically he does he change after the big move? Because many of the, the Egyptian people, some of his advisors resigned. And we talked about the estrangement from the Arab world. 
but does he believe in this more and more or does he more and more ambiguous? I saw something of Jahan Sadat saying that my husband knew he was going to be killed for this, but we just didn't talk about this. But I'm just trying to understand how after he makes the big leap, so to speak, how it influences thinking about the initiative and his defiance against his critics. He was solid enough, shrewd enough to understand by this stage, you know, getting to Camp David that, you know, it's just a tough issue. And I guess there was a number of factors that helped. Uh, one of them was Osama al-Baz. Some of the people in Carter's staff were working on, on many of the, that there is always a way out. And when you have crisis with big and like uh, getting Sharon on the issue of settlement. But also they were by that, so that's charmed Wiseman. And Wiseman was key. He was forthcoming. He was in a way oriental. Well, they got along well. And see here, you know, people like us coming from IR studies and political science and stuff like this give too much value, objective realities, how things, you know, went, how the communication happened. But there are individual personal factors. It happened that I met with Wiseman for about three hours, four hours in Jerusalem, in his office. When he was president or when he was still defense minister at the time? When he was president. And actually, he was very passionate about Sadat. And I believe here that there was something common, you know, Wiseman lost his son. In war. Yeah, he was very much affected by his son's death in war, and he wanted no more wars. And also Sadat, his brother, who was like a son because he raised him. And he died in the first wave of Egyptian planes in, in the war. So there was a personal touch there. And at certain points, Sadat made what people do sometimes. You threat to destroy the whole process. And actually, when the day he decided to leave Camp David, actually Carter went to him and threatened him, you know, that Egyptian-American relations would be affected. But if you stay, that's what Carter told him, then I will take your position on the issue of the airfields and the issue of the settlements, which were the biggest two issues at the time of the negotiations. There were the two big sticking points at the end. Would Israel evacuate these airfields in the Sinai, and would Israel remove the settlers in the northern Sinai, in the Yamit area? And those were two key, and those ones where they were solved, you had a breakthrough. Would it be fair to say, Abdul Munim, that in a certain way, Begin and Sadat were closer to each other than they were to Carter? For me, or my generation, the idea of liberating or taking Israelis off Sinai, that's a great thing to do. But what was not great was how we can take that for a more comprehensive piece, because despite the fact if Egypt got Sinai is great, however, it is not a good thing to stay in a very unstable region. And with a sense that all our neighbors are somehow feeling that Egypt betrayed them. And unfortunately, Sadat over-exaggerated two things, that Carter will stay in power, which proved to be wrong because Carter is one-term president. Second, he thought that the American institution means kind of durability of ideas. But once Reagan came, he has a completely different perspective than, than Carter. And as such, you know, the autonomy talks, which if it was a success, probably many of the problems we are facing today 
we want to have it in the first place. But unfortunately, things got complicated and begin uh, started to talk about autonomy talks as if kind of administrative kind of autonomy. And, you know, and Sadat was assassinated. Later on, Sadat's very kind of grand strategy was not completed. Did Sadat think that the Islamists, which we haven't discussed, the ones who actually killed him, did he underestimate them as a threat? For the first one, I think he overestimated himself because once they decided to assassinate him, they took the short road and they succeeded. At the time, he was their friend also. Right. People need to know is that he basically invited the Islamists back from Saudi Arabia, right? Saudi Arabia and out of prisons and allowed them to have uh, a magazine and uh, saying in Egyptian public life. Was that because he saw them as a counterweight to Nasserism? Why did he do it? His political enemies, that was the Nasserites, because the Nasserites uh, were not accepting from the beginning that Egypt took the war. His peace initiatives. That this engagement agreement broke all uh, relationship between him and the Nasserites. And that was a big mistake. Well, he underestimated them because he overestimated himself, because these guys were penetrating, as we have seen in his assassination, they penetrated the army, the they succeeded to get into the parade. They succeeded in, in assassinating him. That was because of high penetration into very sensitive military and security areas. So if you had to now assess the Sadat legacy. For Egypt, Sadat actually removed the legacy of being occupied by foreign forces, ruled by foreign people for almost 3,000 years. Since 1982, when the Israelis got out, until now, Egypt has got the first almost four decades of being totally liberated from foreigners and occupation. Second, he implanted the idea of development, the idea that Egypt could be a great country if it concentrated on the idea of opening the economy and starting the process of getting into the age that we are in. During that period, Egypt was in, in the second wave of development in the world. And he started the multi-party system in Egypt again. I mean, he did a lot of things in terms of seeds, uh, ideas. We just want to thank you so much, Abdelmanim, for you taking the time to be with us and really reminding people of the legacy and the life of this great historic leader. So I want to thank you very, very much. Most welcome, David. The story of Anwar Sadat should provide a sense of humility to all. No policymaker, no analyst, no journalist predicted that this leader, who rose in the shadow of the charismatic Kamal Abdel Nasser, would become one of the most consequential leaders of the Middle East in the 20th century. We heard today how his move to peace with Israel was not due to caprice. It was a journey, a function of Sadat's assessment of Egypt's needs and Egypt's challenges. He was a man of great political courage. He was able to withstand all of his critics, and sadly, he paid the ultimate price for his decision. Yet his iconic trip to Jerusalem is one of the boldest steps in modern Middle Eastern history. Most importantly, the peace between Israel and Egypt has held for over 40 years since his trip, ending the frequent bloody and costly wars not just between Israel and Egypt, but Israel and its neighboring states. 
both Anwar Sadat and his counterpart in making peace, Menachem Begin, will be remembered for leading their peoples to a better future. Please go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe, rate, and review Decision Points. And please tell your friends. I've also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross on four key Israeli leaders called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinator, Basha Rosenbaum, researcher, Scott Boxer, Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute, Richard Myron and Anouk Millet of Earshot Strategies, and Paul Woody Woodhull of District Productive. Thank you all.